Right, uh, we haven't got the screens up, so we won't be putting the text up on the screen. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 19 and verse 28, I'll start reading from there in a moment. Or if you haven't got a Bible with you and you want to shuffle up closer to somebody who has got one, uh, you could follow there. The title I gave Sam for today, What's the Evidence? I think, hope by the time we come to the end of the day, you will have even more confidence in the evidence for the resurrection than before. <coughs> but let's go through and see what it says. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. This is talking about Jesus. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, which is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, as he was drawing near already, on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now that passage might not seem to link closely to what I said at the beginning, but if you bear with me, there will be various connections as we go along. On Palm Sunday, the 19th of April, 1992, I was speaking, I can't remember if it's from this gospel or another gospel, on similar words, at an unregistered Baptist church in Kazan, Russia. I was there for two reasons. Over the previous four years, I'd been posting Bibles and Christian literature to one of the leaders of the church. But I was in Kazan at that time because I'd been invited by a pen friend, a captain in what had been the Soviet, but by then was the Russian missile artillery. Now, those who know me will know that I don't place much emphasis on special days. I would, you know, I was, I'm quite happy to sing a carol if it's good at any time of the year. Because if it's giving us the truth of the gospel, what does it matter when we sing it? But I notice Luke hasn't pulled me up on my dates, because if you know your dates carefully, the 19th of April cannot be Palm Sunday in this country. Because the latest uh, Easter can be in this country somewhere about 22nd, 23rd of April. But because I was in Russia, they were following the uh, Orthodox calendar for Easter. So although it was Palm Sunday in Russia, 
It was Easter Sunday here in England. So when I got back to England, I'd actually missed out on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And to my surprise, I found this very disconcerting. Because I thought, you know, I think, you know, I treat every day the same. So why was that such a... uh, Why is that so unsettling? So that's one thing. The resurrection actually matters. And actually, as a Christian, I found that by missing out on commemorating the resurrection, it actually, I felt I'd missed on something. But this sermon comes mainly out of an invitation I received last October from one of Lucy's friends who teaches at Bapchild School. And her year six class in the primary school were studying Genesis chapters one and two. And the teacher wanted a scientist who was also a Christian to go in and answer some of their questions. Uh, Professionally, uh, I was a physics teacher. And so I agreed to go. And because that kind of concept of, you know, science and Christianity uh, questions can go all over the place, if you're not careful, I asked them to give me three questions, and I said I'd answer one of them. And the question I chose to answer was, can you believe both in God and the Big Bang Theory. So that got me thinking about evidence and its consequences. And I've been thinking, as Sam's been saying, I've been thinking about this since then, and I've probably thrown some of these ideas into my sermons over the last few months, but it's probably bringing them all together. Right, putting it simply, because I'm not going to spend much time on the physics, there are, there's no evidence that the Big Bang uh, ever occurred. What you have got, though, are three pieces of evidence which are very difficult to explain if the Big Bang didn't occur. Now, these are redshift in light from galaxies, cosmic background radiation, and the chemical composition of the universe. The fact that about three-quarters of it is made of hydrogen. So, I was thinking, right, if that's the evidence for the Big Bang, what's my alternative in terms of believing in God? I think the first point I made is I don't believe in God because I think Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are factually correct. I take Genesis 1 and 2 seriously because Jesus took it seriously and Jesus is the person I follow. So, to me, it's the evidence for Jesus which matters. Anything to do with creation and how I approach that follows from how I view Jesus. And the evidence I was thinking about was, well, what evidence is there for the resurrection? I think the, although as we're coming up to Easter... Good Friday, the crucifixion is critical and important. In many ways, the resurrection is even more important because it validates what happened on the cross. And also, because Jesus rose from the dead, we know that we have got life after death as well and that we will also 
resurrect and have a resurrection body. And I think I'm, uh, Scripture also supports me in taking the resurrection as my primary evidence. Because if you look in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens and talking to sort of the Greeks and particularly the intellectuals there, we find in Acts chapter 17 verse 18 that uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with Paul and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they seem to think that he was preaching about two foreign divinities, one called Jesus and one called resurrection. Well, that seems to be the implication there. So obviously Paul, was, when he was talking about Jesus, to people who knew nothing about Jesus, one of the primary things he was talking about was the resurrection, because that's what they picked up on. And we're told when he spoke further in verse 29, he was, this is Paul talking to them. Uh, from verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So here, Paul was telling the people in Athens, the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead is the assurance we have that he is the one who will judge us at the final judgment. So therefore, it's the resurrection which is it's like the validation of what Jesus has done. So, what evidence is there for the resurrection? Again, no direct evidence. There's no evidence at the time. There's no record saying Jesus rose from the dead on this day. But there's vastly more than three pieces of evidence which would be extremely difficult to explain if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead. In the same way as with the Big Bang Theory, there's three bits of evidence which is difficult to explain if the Big Bang Theory isn't true. So I've chosen three pieces of evidence which you've got to find an explanation for if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The first one is this. Not so much the Bible as, but why do we use books? Or the history of books. It's clear that Christians weren't the first people to use books. But it's also clear that they were very early adopters, to use the modern term, of the new technology. And if you look at libraries which Christians kept at about in the sort of second, third century AD, you find that they keep their Greek uh, authors, your sort of the classics, if you like which any educated person would have in their library, are on scrolls. Because if you want a high-quality piece of literature, you had it on a scroll. 
I suppose the, our equivalent would be somebody having a leather-bound volume of the collected works of William Shakespeare on their shelves. If you've got it there, it shows that you're cultured. Whether you read it, to be cultured is another issue, but you have it there. On the other hand, their Bibles and their Christian literature was all in books. So, in a sense, in that time, a book would have been it'd be equivalent to our comparison between a hardback and a paperback. The reason Christians used books is because you actually wanted to get to the information quickly and easily. If you've got a scroll and you want to find chapter 26, it takes you a bit of a while to work your way down the scroll to reach it. You've got a book, or the term which archaeologists use for that, a codex, you can turn to it quite quickly. I had great difficulty googling to find any actual archaeological references to early codexes, early books, which weren't actually Bibles. About the earliest I could find was about 500 AD for a Jewish prayer book. Doesn't mean they didn't exist, but what you find, if you do, and you can do the Google searches for all of these things, what you find is that almost all of the books we have from the earliest times are either Bibles or they are sort of apocryphal books uh, which are aimed at Christians. The vast majority of uh, things are that. If you haven't visited Dublin Castle and while there gone to the Chester Beatty Library, can I recommend any time you're in Dublin, make sure you get there. Lynn and I visited it when we were in Dublin, but almost not by accident because we'd found a leaflet about it, but we hadn't planned to go there before we did. Chester Beatty was a oil executive in the Middle East in the 1920s and 1930s. He made an awful lot of money. And he used his money to buy up early literature, which at that time people would exchange uh, their family heirlooms for a Hewitt-Packard, no, it wouldn't be Hewitt-Packard, whatever the Packard car was, whatever. So he managed to hoover up all sorts of stuff across the Middle East, into Asia. So in this library, you've got all these early, generally the earliest examples of literature from different sources. And in there, you've got some of the earliest examples of parts of the Gospels being written down, going back to the second century AD. The thing which struck me is when you look at the bits of the Gospels, they are tatty little bits of papyrus. You look at the earliest Quran, which is in there, and it's elegant with all the lovely coloured calligraphy, gold leaf and everything. The thing is, Christians used books because they wanted to read what was in it. What it was saying was important to them. It was important to everyone. It wasn't just for the rich people. 
So how do you explain that? Why do, in that second and third century AD, are Christians so concerned with getting this information out compared to any other group at all? Not just religious. There just isn't that quantity of material out there. So that's the first thing you've got to explain. Second thing, actual content of the Gospels. How do we know this is accurate? I always find it extremely amusing that theologians have all these questions about the accuracy of the New Testament books, while archaeologists, if they want to know what life was like in the Middle East in the first century, go to the Bible to read and find out. Because there's very little literature of that period which actually has information about how people live. Because it's just not what literature was writing about. And in fact, we can be sure of the accuracy. I don't know if you notice at the beginning of the passage I mentioned, we've got four place names. Oh, I've got, sorry, I'm back in Acts now. So back in Luke chapter 19, in the first verses, you get references to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, to Bethany, to a mountain called Olivet. Now, a guy called Dr. Simon Gathercole, who is the reader in New Testament studies at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, uh, being an academic, is obviously interested in such things as how accurate are those. So what he did is he looked at the available literature for the first century in Palestine. So you've got three main sources. You've got the New Testament Gospels, You've got a chap called Josephus, who was a Jewish nobleman who had links into the uh, Roman uh, uh, aristocracy, and he wrote some histories of the Jewish people of that period. And you've got various documents written by rabbinic scholars of the time. And what he did was he looked in all of these at what place names were mentioned. Because some people will say you can't take the gospel seriously because nobody else mentions Nazareth for about three or four hundred years. So what he did was he looked at the place names and he found that in the gospels that you have... Oh, sorry, I've, uh, I've scrapped the bit with the original numbers on. I think it's something like 28, no, 27 place names mentioned. 21 of them are mentioned in the other texts. So 80% of the place names mentioned in the Gospels get mentioned elsewhere by other writers. When he looked at Josephus, he got exactly the same proportion. 80% of the places mentioned by Josephus are also mentioned by the other writers, including some quite obscure villages. And if you look at the rabbinic authors, again, it's about 80%. So therefore, what we know is that the place names which are mentioned in the Bible are known as reliably as any place names in that period from any documents. So if you're going to say that what the Gospels record is inaccurate, basically you're going to have to say we don't know anything about what happened at that period of time. Julius Caesar was probably a myth. 
Because we know, we, what we can check of the Gospels is as accurate as anything else we can check of that period. On the other hand, what generally gets called the apocryphal Gospels, which you might have heard of, things like the Gospel of Barnabas, Gospel of Judas, and so on, which generally come from about two or three centuries later, either they totally avoid mentioning place names anyway, and in passing, you find the Quran does that as well, or if they do mention places, they get the geography wrong. But what we find with the New Testament is when you can check the geography, it's right. So therefore, that's the second thing you'd have to explain away if the resurrection didn't occur, is the Gospels aren't wholly based around the resurrection. If they're not an accurate account, what is? And I think my final third point I'd make is the fact that we're actually meeting today on a Sunday. Why did they change the day they met? Because one thing which tends to be true about uh, religions in generally is religions don't tend to change things. You tend to stick with your traditions. So why change? Something to change, something drastic has to happen. So what happened on a Sunday to cause them to change? And the only thing they say happened on a Sunday which caused them to change was the resurrection. Now, as I say, none of these things prove that the resurrection took place. But, in the same way as people believe in the Big Bang Theory, you look at what the evidence is and can it be explained any other way. The difference, the point I made when I was at the school, the difference between the fact I believe in Big Bang Theory and the fact I believe in God, or more specifically in Jesus, is if I believe in the Big Bang Theory or not, it has absolutely no effect on my life. And it can't have any effect on my life. The time scale is just so great, whether it happens or not is not going to make any difference on the time scale we live in. So therefore, I can believe in the Big Bang Theory and it doesn't change anything. But, as we see at the end of this passage, when it comes to Jesus, you can't just treat him in that same way. Because we find at the end of this passage in Luke chapter 19, when the, uh, Jesus' disciples, they say this, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're seeing Jesus as their coming king. Bringing peace between heaven and earth. Now obviously at this point, their understanding of who Jesus is is still very limited. We haven't gone through the crucifixion. We haven't gone through the resurrection. So they're going to have to make decisions later as to do they actually believe what they're saying when they see the consequences and the evidence of what Jesus does. And if they do believe, that is going to change their lives totally. 
But also, we find we've got the Pharisees there in the crowd saying to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they're saying what they're saying isn't true. And that's the choice we have when we come to Jesus. Because either what he says and did is true, and therefore we've got to take it seriously, and it's going to change how we live, or it's not true, and we can ignore it. I think it was, I didn't double check the reference, but I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, was, you know, about Jesus, as either he was who he said he was, and supremely important, or he wasn't who he said he was, and of no importance, what he can't be is moderately important. Now, of course, what, if you like, that commas Christianity as a religion, people will tend to treat Jesus as if he's moderately important. You know, allow to have some impact on their lives, but when it comes to the crunch, what I want is what I choose. But if we take the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, is supreme over all, we cannot just treat him like that. We have to give him his full due. So, that's why I, more and more I look at it, I get convinced the resurrection is of importance. So when we talk to people, I think talking of the resurrection is of importance. It's not a case that people in the past were stupid and therefore thought that the resurrection could occur. Because as the Athenians in Acts said a bit later, you know, why listen to this guy? He's talking about people coming back from the dead. He's obviously Dulali. Or doesn't quite say that in the uh, Bible, but it gives that. That's the impression it gives. People knew that dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus did. And therefore we need to respond to that.